Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides people to find the treasure within human experience. I'm your host, Sol Hanna. One of the most impactful traditions of Buddhism in the modern world is one that isn't very good at publicity, but it is very dedicated to practice. Despite its strict adherence to the principles of monastic discipline and the principles of Buddhist ethics, like for instance, never selling the teachings, it has gained a huge grassroots following in many Western countries where people are drawn to its plain, simple honesty and dedication to the original principles set out by the Buddha himself. I'm referring to the Thai forest tradition, and to help us understand the origins and practices of the Thai forest tradition, I have as our guest Stephen Taylor, who, at the age of 19, left his home in the UK to travel to Thailand to ordain as a bhikkhu in 1972. This was a time in which the Thai forest tradition was in full bloom and the first Westerners were travelling to Thailand to practice and even ordain. Stephen ordained at Wat Pawaniwe and for many, for a while, uh, Prakanti Palo was one of his mentors. Stephen went on to have many great teachers, including the renowned meditation master Arjan Tet. He's still dedicated to the Thai forest tradition and practicing to this day, and he has translated several Dhamma books from Thai to English for the benefit of the community. He's kindly joined us on the Treasure Mountain podcast to offer his knowledge and insights into this tradition that continues to grow in popularity to this day. So join us as we seek for the treasure within. Treasure Mountain, Stephen. How are you today? Thanks for having me, Sol. Yes, uh, very good. Uh, given that uh, uh, every day is dukkha, <laughs> <laughs> never a truer word. Uh, but I'm really pleased that you've uh, joined us. I've uh, kind of had some contact with you a little bit in the past, but I've heard lots about you, and I'm really pleased that you come to join us to share your experience and knowledge today. Look, our first question today is kind of a bit of a big one. I wanted to just give some context and say that when we here in the West, we think of Thailand, we often think of it as being a devoutly Buddhist country. However, if we go back 100, 150, 200 years, there were a lot of problems with the way Buddhism was being practiced. Often the monastic discipline wasn't being followed very rigorously. There was lots of giving horoscopes and lucky charms and etc. Uh, and then a renaissance movement got underway. And it started with a crown prince who became a monk and sought to get the Sangha back to basics. Could you give us a bit of background as to what was going on in Thai Buddhism from about the late 19th century? Um, yeah, sure. Look, 
Back then in Thailand, there was basically one sect, which was the called the Mahanikai sect, or the greater sect, basically. And you're right, they'd fallen into, really, uh, the, the, the practice of the Vinaya had really almost passed away. There were reports of um, monks who had mistresses, um, monks who would eat um, all day long, you know, so they wouldn't, they'd eat after um, midday, they'd handle money, um, and they'd have uh, possessions uh, that, uh, you know, they'd own, they'd own um, like plots of land and things like that, all which are against the, the Vinaya. And the real, um, the real problem with that was that in the Vinaya, when a monk ordains, there are certain rules which have to be observed. And that also, well, one of those rules is there has to be a quorum of bhikkhus, a quorum of monks that are present at the time, and they have to sit within atapasa, they have to sit within a forearm's length of each other during a particular part of the ceremony. And also the ceremony has to be done within a con on what you could, I guess, consider consecrated ground. Now, what... The, the problem with that is that if one of those monks that is part of the quorum uh, during the time of ordination is himself not a monk because he's committed one of the, uh, something like Parajika, um, which is one of the four defeats for a, for a monk. So, for example, um, he's had uh, sexual intercourse. So he's like, so, so a monk who's had a wife, got a wife or a, or a, a mistress, uh, clearly would fall into that sort of category. Um, so if that, and that, what that means is um, that's automatic excommunication from the monkhood, regardless of whether the monk or the person stays with his head shaved and wears orange robes. Um, from a, a Sangha perspective, from the, the order of monks perspective, that particular person is no longer a monk. Uh, so when that monk then, or when that person then sits in on the ordination of another uh, person, that ordination becomes invalid because the quorum is corrupt. And then the person who thought that he was a monk isn't actually a monk, and then he goes and sits in on another ordination of someone else. And because he's not ordained properly, then the ordination, the ordination of the third person is not um uh, valid either. So you end up with a lot of um, men wearing saffron, shaving their heads, who aren't actually ordained uh, according to the principles of the Vinaya. And so effectively you're getting uh, people who are um, taking alms from lay people and taking gifts from lay people who aren't um, entitled to them, uh, even under the Thai law at the time. Um, so this was a real problem. And King Mongkut, or, well, um, he became King Mongkut, uh, famous, famous through the King and I movie, which is banned in Thailand because it's so inaccurate. But anyway, before he, became, before he became king, 
Um, he did ordain. He was ordained, I can't remember how long now, about 20 years or something like that. Uh, and he saw that this was this kind of practice just wasn't um, uh, what he wanted for um, his own practice. So he decided that he would go and seek ordination from uh, monks in uh, Sri Lanka. And he not only uh, took ordination there, but he learned all about how to make ground, consecrated ground, to set up what we call a sema, which is the area um, in a monastery set aside for doing religious practices like ordinations. And then he went to ordain also with the Mon, because uh, the Mon culture is arguably the first um, Buddhist culture in Southeast Asia from which the Buddhist, uh, from which the Burmese Buddhist tradition comes and from which um, the Thai tradition uh, comes. So he reordained with them. So he had several ordinations and just to try and make sure that at least one of them was accurate and according to the Vinaya. And then he came back to Thailand and he established the Dhammayuta Nikaya, which was the reforming sect, that with the idea that ordinations would be pure, that the monks would practice the, uh, the Vinaya, the uh, rules of training, keep their precepts. And uh, then he could then be fairly confident that those monks that were ordained were, were truly ordained and part of the Sangha. And uh, that set the Dhammayuta Nikaya apart from the Mahanikaya, and uh, that sort of uh, tradition still continues to today. So that reform movement really kind of was like tidying up um, the behaviour and training of the Sangha, and I guess in one sense it was a re rededication to the original principles of the Vinaya. However, there was still, I believe... A lot of people in Thailand who kind of believed that getting enlightened wasn't really even possible. What changed all that? Uh, yeah, look, certainly the. I mean, obviously, I wasn't around at the time, but uh, the the uh, tradition has it that back then that most um, Thai people didn't really believe that um, full enlightenment was possible anymore. And that's largely because the practice of the monks was so bad. Um, you know, they, um, the, the practices that some of the monks had were, were just so far off um, where they should be that it led to uh, lay people in particular being, uh, having no confidence in the monks. And of course, it's, the, the monk's lifestyle is supposed to be one of a recluse so that you have little um, uh, distractions from the practice. But of course, if you're living a life like a householder, but you just happen to be wearing saffron, uh, then it doesn't inspire confidence that you're going to uh, attain enlightenment. So when the Dhammayut was established, one of the um, early followers of the Dhammayut was a teacher called Ajahn Sao. And he is credited with starting the um, what became the Thai forest tradition. But also what, what he's really credited with was starting the practice of the Jutanga, which are the ascetic practices, 
which also means um, that he set up the tradition, the ancient tradition of monks wandering around the forest, um, going from village to village and seeking alms and practicing solitude, going to the foot of a tree, going to uh, into caves. And, you know, when the Buddha uh, passed on ordination to, to the monks, because in the beginning he used to do all the ordinations and set up the... Um, uh, the uh, tradition and uh, the process. One of the things in the ordination procedure, it says, uh, it, in, it uh, tells the the newly ordained monk to go and live at the foot of a tree. Rakamula sayanasalan, go and live out in the in the country. Go and live uh, and uh, seek solitude. And so Ajahn Sao was um, credited with starting that tradition again. And then his follower, Ajahn Man, um, is well known in, in the Thai forest tradition, uh, went with him and started to learn the tradition. And, of course, they, they were very strict in their practice. They would only eat one meal a day. They would always eat before noon. They would only eat food that went into their bowl. So they wouldn't eat food that came afterwards. Um, and there were a whole range of other practices which set them apart, even from the study monks who were living in the city, uh, where most of the Damayut monks were located in cities and towns. But he started, Ajahn Sao and Ajahn Man together, started the forest tradition, which was one uh, which was a little bit more um, reclusive. Right, right. So in one sense, you could say that... Um, uh, Prince Mongkut, when he was a monk, kind of got the Sangha re-established in the Vinaya, and then Ajahn Sao and perhaps also Ajahn Man were looking at, well, how did the Buddha practice and what did the Buddha praise and say that monks should do? And of course, as you pointed out, they say it again and again and again. You know, there are these roots of trees and so forth. So in one sense, you'd say that this was like getting back to the roots of what Buddhism was supposed to be about. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, it was it was also, um, uh, of course, uh, at a time which was um, fairly uh, turbulent politically as well, uh, because it was a time between two world wars, and in fact, Ajahn Man was was uh, walking through the forests, uh, practicing when the Japanese um, invaded Thailand, and uh, uh, you know so. There was not. There was a lot of social upheaval that was going on um, during that time as well, uh, and so I guess people were also looking for inspiration. And when uh, lay people saw the way that Ajahn Man practiced, he became quite popular, and his name started to become quite famous. And so he started to attract a range of other monks um, who wanted to practice strict. Vinaya, and also to uh, practice uh, meditation. And Ajahn Man is reputed to be an Arahant, an enlightened being, and uh, he had a, quite a large following over quite a, a number of years. Um, and some of his early teachers, uh, sorry, some of his early pupils were um, uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Fan, Ajahn Tet, and then uh, towards the end of his life, he had um, 
uh, monks like Ajahn Mahabua and Ajahn Wan, who uh, were much younger than Ajahn Phan and Ajahn Tet. But there are a wide range of others. Um, Lungpu Wen, um, Ajahn Kao, they were all uh, followers of, of Ajahn Man. And many of those were still alive when I was in Thailand. So I actually uh, got to be, uh, I had uh, the the good fortune to be able to meet them. And because uh, I could speak Thai, I had the good fortune of being able to talk to them too. So uh, um, mm. it, that was quite inspiring in its own right. And I'm looking forward to asking you about your personal experiences in a short time. But I did want to just follow up and ask um, about the the tradition. I mean, I should point out that it, you know Ajahn Man isn't like trying to set up something special or different. It comes to be identified as the Thai forest tradition. But actually, what he's trying to do is practice as best he knows how, according to the Vinaya, according to what's in the suttas and I guess also his own experience. You've given us some ideas about how this tradition is distinctive, um, particularly in its strict adherence to Vinaya. Did you want to add anything else about what is, you know, what can we identify in terms of practices and say, well, that's characteristic of the Thai forest tradition? Well, um, Thai forest tradition, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is very much focused on uh, developing one's own citta, one developing one's own self first, if you can if you can use that word loosely. Uh, so it's really it's really all about practicing. It's really all about sila samadhi and banya. It's really all about setting up a firm foundation uh, of uh, of uh, being generous uh, of. Um, practicing morality and having that s- firmly and solidly established so that you can build on that by developing uh, concentration, by developing your um, uh, meditation uh, and then developing wisdom on top of that. So uh, uh, it's really, it's it's there for uh, uh, one to, uh, I guess, develop personally before you can then, before you then go on and then help others to uh, to tread the path. So it's it's all about um, practicing, building internally, doing internal building, building one's mind, building um, goodness, and forsaking all those things which are the opposite of goodness. Hmm. And Thai, the Thai tradition, the Thai forest tradition, is very much about seeing the Dhamma within one's own being. It's not so much about reading about Dhamma. It's not so much about study. It doesn't say don't study, but after you've learned the basics, the real Thai forest tradition is all about practicing meditation. It's all about being reclusive, going, retiring to quiet places, having Gaya Viveka, which is basically the um, being in a quiet place and chitta viveka, having calmness of mind, having having your mind in a reclusive state, if you like, one that's withdrawn from the senses, one that doesn't go out seeking things in the world, seeking sensual pleasure. This is really the the core of the um, of the practice, with a view to becoming enlightened, and that's really 
where the Thai teachers came from, they teach a way. <clears throat> excuse me. They teach a way which was goes all the. It follows the tradition right the way back, as you pointed out, right the way back to the time of the Buddha. So they're really trying to just incorporate in today's world the same practices that were there at the time of the Lord Buddha. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask, how did the Sangha hierarchy react to these intrepid and non-conformist monks who eschewed living in a monastery or temple and instead sought the wild jungles or remote parts of Thailand, at least for a part of the year where they would go on Tudong, which is like walking around the country um, in having no fixed abode. Um, today, of course, the teachers that you mentioned are revered in Thailand, but at the time, how were these monks considered by the Sangha hierarchy in Thailand? Um, it's... Well, if you look at the original Sangha um, hierarchy at the time, um, one of the, um, I mean, there, there was the, really then only the Mahanikai. So this reforming sect wasn't very well received. The downside for the Mahanikai monks was that it was the king, or the, 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 uh, the, the, the prince, the, <laughs> a member of the royal family who was highly revered, who was starting this up. So there's there's hardly anything that they could really say about it. And uh, so the Dhammayut um, had its own hierarchy and uh, the Mahanikai had its own hierarchy and later on they would come to coalesce and form a, a Sangha council. Um, but in the early days, uh, it was uh, the Thai forest tradition set up by Ajahn Man and uh, uh, sorry, by Ajahn Sao and Ajahn Man. Uh, even some of the study monks in the in the city that were Dhammayut didn't o always react too well to them because uh, they were seen as being a little bit more ascetic and a little bit more um, dedicated than some of the monks who wanted to study uh, and lived in cities and uh, towns and cities. But um yeah so some of the uh monks from the opposite sect from the Mahanikai, some of those had um quite severe adverse um reactions to to the monks turning up uh i recall stories from told to me by ajahn Tet. Who spent? Who was asked by the then Sankaraja, who'd become Damayut in those days? That's back in the fifties, nineteen fifties. And uh, the, the the then Sankaraja asked Ajahn Tet to go down south, down around the areas around Phuket, um, and uh, because there were. He, the Sankaraja had heard that there were some monks not practicing well and the lay people were uh, getting quite despondent. And so he said, would you go down there and show them how monks should practice? So Tenachantet set off with just a couple of monks, I think, at a novice uh, initially. And uh, when he started to um, establish uh, a small... Uh, monastery down in the south, the uh, he had all sorts of things happen. 
uh, monks from the opposite sect from the Mahanikai would lie in the streets and throw stones at him when he was going on arms round in the morning. They tried to persuade lay people not to give the the Damayut monks food. Um, they set fire to his kuti. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't in it at the time, but uh, they poisoned his food. Oh, unbelievable. Um, yeah. yeah, because um, he showed them up because of the strict practice that, that he had, that they were there with their uh, women friends and uh, uh, they were... You know, going out at night time, drinking and smoking and uh, having a good time. And uh, then when lay people saw how monks should practice, they, of course, started to uh, um, fall in behind uh, Ajahn Tet. And fortunately mm. for, for Ajahn Tet, uh, at that time, some because Phuket was a very wealthy um, province because of uh, mining, uh, there were some workers come down from the northeast, and Tanachante was from the northeast, and so he had a small group of lay people who weren't tainted by um, the same um, bad practice, if you like, that had uh, been encouraged um, by the the local residents. And eventually, you know, he 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 um, calmed the situation down and got lay people supporting him, and he was quite a diplomat, uh, brought the Mahanikai monks eventually online, if you like, or in line. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a difficult time for uh, two or three years, but eventually mm. um, he, uh, he won through. But, I, I mean, does that give you some indication as to uh, how... <laughs> how those forest mm. monks were, were, were treated in some of the places that they went. Yeah, and I get the impression it wasn't so much the Sangha hierarchy, but more that certain groups of monks who weren't behaving themselves very well were felt threatened by this reform movement. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, like a lot of the time the monks of the forest tradition were going to um, remote or rural areas um, how were they received by the regular people, uh, you know, through that early period, you know, from the 40s, 50s through to the 70s? Yeah, because they did not often stay very long, um, they, would, they would turn up to a, a small village for um, a day or two and find somewhere to, to stay at the foot of a tree under their umbrella, under the mosquito net. So... Um, they were because they were monks and Thai lay people were all, have always been generous by by nature. Uh, they would look after them, but um, the problem became uh, um, exacerbated, if you like, when monks decided to stay. Or for the rainy season, for example, when monks can't travel around, they have to spend three months in a monastery, um, in a more um, secure uh, dwelling. So uh, that's when things started to become a little bit more difficult. And also with allocation of land and money. Um, but, of course, that started to be sorted out centrally through uh, things like the Sangha Council, which uh, was, became a combination of, of Mahanikai and, and Damayut monks. And now the tradition is that the Sankaraja alternates between the two Nikayas. So... Um, you have 
Mahanikai Sankaraja for uh, a while, and that Sankaraja dies. The next one, <coughs> excuse me, is Damayut, and then followed by Mahanikai. And so there is the the two have come to coexist, um, but it's not always been a comfortable coexistence. For example, even when I was uh, ordained, um, never mind times before. If a Mahanikai monk came to stay in a Damayut monastery, he would have to sit at the end of the of the line of monks, no matter how senior he was. He could have 50 pansar, and he'd still have to sit at the end of the line because he would not be treated as if he was a monk. He would the the Damayut monks always erred on the uh, on the side of caution, so that monk would never be allowed to participate in any ceremonies, and uh, um, generally speaking. Uh, they, there was still some some friction when I was there in the 70s. Mm. Perhaps it's still there today to some extent. Um, but yes, the, 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 there's, there's probably a little bit more commonality now between those um, in the forest tradition, like the followers of Ajahn Chah, who is Mahanikai, um, and he was one of the only uh, Mahanikai followers of Ajahn Man. And the story is that he went to Ajahn Man and said, you know, I'm happy to disrobe and, and reordain as a Damayut monk like the rest of your followers uh, if you want me to. And Ajahn Man said, no, I want somebody on the, in the Mahanikai tradition who also follows uh, my teachings. And so he allowed Ajahn Chah to remain as a Mahanikai monk. But... Mm. Uh, um, the, even the followers of Ajahn Chah would have difficulty in my day um, staying in a Damayut monastery. But now mm. probably it's a closer affinity between Ajahn Chah's group and the Thai forest tradition of the Damayut <clears throat> than there is between the Damayut from the city and the Damayut from the forest. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting story, I think. And I think it kind of points out that it was, yes, it was about strict adherence to the Vinaya in the Dhammayut style, but it was more than that. It was for a Thai forest tradition was about a way of life, a practice, a dedication. Um, and I, I, I've always wondered about that. Obviously, I don't know the mind of Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Man, but the fact that he made those exceptions at all, like with Ajahn Chah, kind of speaks to like there's something else that's important about what he was trying to teach. I don't. That's yeah. my impression. Yeah, it's all about learning about one's one's being. It's all about mm. learning about body and mind. Yeah, and if you if you practice purely and truly, then um, some of the other things, I guess, become a little bit less significant. Well put. Look, I did want to ask you about your own personal experience um, to see if that can, you know, really highlight what the Thai forest tradition was about in a perhaps a little bit more of not so much a historical sense, but in a, you know, a lived experience. Um, so you ordained as a bhikkhu, a Buddhist monk in the 1970s. What led you to become a bhikkhu in Thailand in the first place? Uh, well, I've been a Buddhist since I was 16. I kept five precepts since that time, um, and I became interested in Buddhism because I studied other religions as well. There, there was something driving me. I, I was looking for something, for some 
uh, meaning in life, if you like. And uh, I read about uh, uh, Islam. I read about Judaism. Uh, obviously, lived lived in a Christian country, uh, so I was taught Christianity at school. But none of excuse me, none of those things seem to um, seem to make sense. There, there seemed to be something lacking. Uh, and when I came across Buddhism, I read about um, read the Dhamma for the first time. Something just clicked. Uh, it, it just became so obvious that um, you know, birth, old age, sickness, and death—they're the only two things that are certain in life, and they're all suffering. And uh, so that just—you know—it was just um, uh, rang a chord with me. And the Four Noble Truths, uh, you know, if, the, if everything is suffering, there must be a cause of suffering. And if you eliminate the cause, then you eliminate the result. And if there's a path of doing it, and the path looks great, you know, you look at it to be a virtuous person. I mean, if you aspire to, uh, to, to have a good heart yourself, then you look at the Eightfold Path, you can't fault it. Mm. You know, it just... For those who are looking, it just stands out um, so boldly. Uh, so th- I, I went to, to the uh, local um, uh, Buddhist society, and there I met a woman, um, Jane Brown, who had been to Thailand several times because uh, she had a Western teacher some years prior who was Ajahn Panyuato, who stayed with Tanachan Mahabua. And uh, so she said, uh, when I decided that I wanted to ordain, she said, well, why don't you go to Thailand and go and stay with Ajahn Panyawato at Tanachan Mahabua's monastery? So uh, that was originally my intention. And Jane wrote letters and uh, uh, sort of got me some introductions. And uh, then I uh, went to... Uh, London to meet some of the Sri Lankan monks that were there just to get some idea as to what was involved. And uh, I also met in 1971 um, uh, Tankantipalo, who was back in the UK at that time because he'd had poor health and he was back recuperating. And he just happened to be staying with some friend of Jane's and uh, myself and uh, Don Casson. Who, who was the first president of the um, WA Buddhist Society, was the, was the foundation or fa- the founding um, president, if you like. He was there as well. So that was the first time I met Don in 1971. And we went down to Somerset to stay with, uh, with Cantipalo there for a weekend. And uh, that's where he told, told me to go and ordain in uh, Wat Bawan. And uh, I, I guess... The, the rest was there in history. I flew out to Thailand on a one-way ticket and uh, because I was only 19, I couldn't ordain immediately as a monk. So I uh, ordained as a novice and stayed as a novice and ordained just before the start of the Pansar in July of uh, 1972, ordained as a full bhikkhu. And then at the time, I had nowhere to stay because I was determined not to stay at Wat Bawan because that was not going to be conducive to anything um, in, by way of personal development because it was just so noisy, a typical city monastery. And 
as it turns out, uh, another English, um, another English monk, uh, Tendon, uh, he had some sympathy for me, a bit of uh, a compassion. And he said, if you want to come with me, you can stay with Ajahn Phan. Um, so just days before the start of Pansar, we left Bangkok and I went to stay at Tam, Tam Kham with Ajahn Phan, who was in residence there because Ajahn Phan at that time had two monasteries, one on the flats and one in the mountains. And I went up to stay with him in the mountains and uh, spent one Pansar there with, with Ajahn Phan. Um, and that was a, a really good experience uh, you know it uh, it was um tucked away on to on a on top of a mountain with with forest everywhere you looked and uh, it allowed me to uh, uh, to practice it allowed me to sit walk sit and walk and sit and walk and uh, I, ten I couldn't speak Thai at the time but Tendon did some translating and uh, yeah Mm. I, I then went to Ajahn Ben and then later on to Ajahn Ted. So, I mean, this is a pretty huge um, transformation because in the 1970s in, in the West and in the UK, there weren't really very many Buddhists at all. And to become a Buddhist was seen as a bit weird. And uh, you've not just done that, you've flown out to Thailand and become uh, a bhikkhu and taken on all the, um, the vinaya. So this is a big uh, culture shock. Uh, what was your memory of that first year with Ajahn Fun? Like, have you got anything that stands out in your mind? Was it a, a real struggle, like adapting, like learning the language, keeping no. the video? Or was it, what was your experience? For me, it was just like coming home. Mm. It was. Uh, it just felt so natural. Just everything just seemed to fit in place. Um, it was difficult because I didn't speak the language immediately, but um, the ties were quite helpful. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. It was just. Um, yeah, I, that's probably the best way to describe it. It was just like coming home, and mm. uh, Telechan fun was wonderful. Um, so, I mean, I could talk to him through Tendon, uh, which was okay. It wasn't as satisfactory as it might have been. But nevertheless, Tan Chan Fun, um, he, uh, um, his personality was such that um, he, just, he just felt warmth. He just, he just radiated metta. He was just an, an amazing human being. And mm. uh, just a, it was just a wonderful experience. I mean, uh, um, you know. I, well, I really want to ask that if you could. I mean, you've started to answer my next question, uh, which is to kind of like relate what were some of those salient memories um, of being with like Ajahn Fun, Ajahn Ben, and Ajahn Teh. These are amazing people to be around. Um, for those of us who never got to meet them can you give us like a, a, a summary of what was what was it like or maybe a salient memory of what it was like being when, with them when i was when i turned 21 on my 21st birthday uh, i was staying at uh, what doi with ajan ben 
and uh, I went down to the because in the morning, as soon as it was uh, as soon as it was dawn, we we were up before dawn, and at, and at dawn we would go down to the to the meeting hall where we ate our meal, and we would clean that up, polish the floor, and sweep and uh, get uh, Ajahn's things ready, and we would we would get ourselves prepared. Uh, for going out on our arms round and on this particular day my 21st birthday and I bear in mind I could speak some Thai then uh, I turned up with my bowl and I was quite happy and jolly and uh, Tanachan said to me uh, what are you so happy about and I said well Today is my 21st birthday, and in the West, when you're 21, then you become a man. So you, you're no longer a boy, you're a man. And Tanachan Ben turned around to me and he said, Are you enlightened yet? And I looked at him a bit perplexed, and I said, No. So he said, Well, what are you doing down here then? If you're a man, you should be sitting in meditation, you should be there practicing until you're enlightened. You shouldn't be coming down here to feed your face. <laughs> and uh, then he turned round to the rest of the monks and he said, oh, the Westerner, Praparang, in Thai Praparang, Westerner, chicken shit. He's chicken shit. <laughs> he come, he's, he's here, there, he's supposed to be a man, and he's not enlightened. He comes down here to eat. He's, he's, there's nothing to him. He's chicken shit. So I said, right, okay. So the very, that, that, that day I did eat, I went on Bindabad, came back, and then um, I got a novice to um, help me set up a little place out, which was away from my, my dwelling, my, from my kuti, from my, my, my hut, and where I could hang my, hang my umbrella, my mosquito net, and uh, it was just enough to sit, and there was a place, a place to walk. And I made a determination that I wasn't going to leave that place until I was enlightened. And so um, I sat, I sat there, walked, sat and walked, sat and walked, sat and walked right the way through the night. And uh, then dawn came. I wasn't going down to the sala. I wasn't going to go Bindabad. If I hadn't become enlightened, I wasn't going to move from that spot. So I stayed there. And then uh, I was, I was in um, uh, just, uh, just between sitting and walking. And a novice came up. And uh, and he said, oh, you've got to come down. Because at that time, I'd also been very sick. Um, I'd had, uh, I was, I'd, I'd passed blood. I had 18 months of uh, problems with my um, digestive tract. I, I'd, I'd passed blood. Um, so I, I wasn't well and I'd lost a lot of weight. Um, but anyway, um, I said to, I said to the novice, no, I'm, I'm not going. Telechan says, oh, you, you've, got to, you've got to come. And I said, no, you, get, you tell Telechan that I'm staying here. I'm not enlightened and I'm not moving, so tell him no. And so the novice went off and I was just going to sit in meditation, just getting comfortable. And the novice comes back and he says, oh, Telechan says, you've been passing blood. Um, you can't not eat. You've got to eat. And I said, are you sure that Telechan says that I can come back? And he says, yeah, Telechan has made it clear that he's telling you, he's ordering you to come back. So I said, all right, I'm only leaving because Telechan is ordering me to come back. I'm not leaving of my own accord. And he said, yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah, come back. And when I went back, 
quiet. Not a word. Not a word. Not this for this Westerners chicken shit. Nothing. Just complete quiet. I just walked in, put my ball down, and I and I and I had the had the meal with the, with the rest of the monks, but it, they were all quiet. All it shut them all up. So Tanajan uh, <laughs> didn't say a word afterwards. Mm-hmm. I was I was I was no longer chicken shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's amazing. Did you have any um, memories? I mean, you've, um, it's wonderful to hear these stories, um, and we don't really have time to hear them all. But do you have any memories of your time with um, Ajahn Tet? Ah, uh, Ajahn Tet. Um, he came to he came to Australia, um, and uh, when he came to Australia, I came with him as his interpreter, and. Uh, I'll, I'll share a personal story with you mm. that I don't share with many Go people. Yeah. Um, Thank you. We went to, we came to Perth, we went to Melbourne, we went to Sydney. Um, Telechante wanted to see Pratmahasamai as he was then, he's now Chalkun Samai, um, at uh, the temple in, in Ranwick. It wasn't, hadn't been long established, and Telechante wanted to see that they had everything that they needed and and just wanted to see how Buddhism was developing. And uh, we stayed there, and uh, one evening um, I had, I was, when I was practicing in deep concentration, um, I, had, I had this vision appear to me, and it said, that it was a vision of, of, of me, basically, and uh, it, it, to cut a long story short, it, it basically said that um, a, a, over a, a hundred years ago, Tenajan Tet and I were brothers. We were both members of the royal family and of, of the Thai royal family, of which there were umpteen children, because back then <laughs> um, there were lots of, lot, the Thai monarchs had lots of kids. And... Uh, and basically, the the, the um, what came through was that Tanacham was saying to me, as my elder brother, that I, being him, I am the first one in that family that has become enlightened. And then he turns to me and he says to me, "When are you going to be the second? And so. Wow. Uh, I, I, I went to Tanajan and I said I told him exactly what I'd, what had happened to me, and I asked him if, if if is this true? You know, were we brothers in, in a life, and you're enlightened now, and you're asking me when I'm going to become second? And he just smiled and didn't say anything. Totally non totally non-committal because um, that yeah you know, it wouldn't have been wrong for him to to respond. But he wasn't, he wasn't particularly like that. Because if I'd have been a layperson, it would have been wrong for him to respond. Because I was a monk, mm. he could have said something but didn't. Then when I was um, going into the, uh, the kitchen the following morning because we were getting ready for, for a meal, Tanachan was, was sitting down with a lay supporter there who'd come with us. Um, and he, he, knew I was, he knew I was coming down. And uh, 
and, and he said to he said to the layperson, he said, you know that Dan Stephen, um, wherever we go, he can always meditate truly. So I and he knew I heard him. So he hmm. and there was absolutely no way that that layperson had any understanding what he was talking about. But he hmm. was just he's just simply saying to me um, indirectly that um, what I'd said was right. Mm, uh, wow. And uh, so um, he, he was just he was just a wonderful teacher. He, he, he knew the Dharma inside out and back to front. He knew how to practice it. He'd read the Dharma as well. He could relate to Pali passages to, um, to, to the practice. He could answer any question that you might, anyone might ask about Dharma. He was just a wonderful human being and a wonderful teacher of Dharma. Uh, and it and sounds it, like in great detail. And it sounds like he had a great deal of sensitivity based on his meditation that he was able to read his students quite well and to offer the advice that they needed. Is that would that be true? Uh, I think that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. Look, um, I have just a couple more questions that I want to ask, and it's kind of more. Uh, I've asked you so far to look backwards. I kind of want you to look, um, based on your experience, uh, to look forward a little bit because um, in recent decades, Buddhism has moved into the West, including it's got hundreds of offshoots now of Thai forest tradition in terms of monasteries and so forth. However, really it is early days for Buddhism in the West and there's so much more that needs to be done for it to become well-established. What do you think are some of the main strengths and weaknesses of Buddhism in the West at this time? Um, I think one of the problems that you have with um, Buddhism in the West, because there isn't a Buddhist culture as such, is the lack of faith. Mm. Sattā is one of the five powers one of the five bala and uh, I think it's lacking in in the West because we're not brought up with it and and also faith has a different connotation um, because of exposure to Christianity in the West you know we have to have faith that there's a God faith in in Buddhism faith in in Dhamma um, has a slightly different connotation because you know, I always say that faith and and panya, sadha and panya, are on the same continuum. That you have faith in the beginning, but as you practice and you learn more and you understand more, and faith gets converted into knowledge and wisdom. And so, in the end, the things which you had faith for or faith about in the beginning, you now realize for yourself. So you see for yourself. So faith is replaced by knowledge, by wisdom. And that's a difference uh, to uh, like faith in a god, which you never, you never know whether it's true or not. Um, you only have you, if you don't have that faith, though, it's then difficult to to practice. Because mm. the other the other thing is that um, without faith, then it's difficult to reconcile the role of the sangha, mm. because. Um, without, you know, the, the, it's a triple gem. It's the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And so you have to have um, 
uh, monks and uh, lay people have to support the, the monastic community. It's the monks who have a lifestyle which is more reclusive, who's more conducive to becoming enlightened. And so they're, therefore, um, if they practice properly, then they can teach the lay people. But if you don't have people who practice properly, if you don't have monks who um, you know do practice some um, uh, a more reclusive uh, lifestyle, a less hindered lifestyle, then who's going to teach? You end mm. up with a situation which I see frequently on the internet, where you have the blind leading the blind, people who don't know what they're talking about, um, telling others um, and only compounding misinformation uh, or out, outright um, inconsistency or you know um, something's not not factual not true um, and uh, so that's that's then difficult and where do you go to find it what is right and what is wrong what is the way to practice difficult in the West because you've got so many different people who will tell you where to practice and how to practice so the the, um, the the problem really is therefore how do you actually um, sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of what is what is real Buddhism and what what is the best way to practice? Um, that's very well, difficult. That was that that was one of the key features of the Thai forest tradition is that they kept on emphasising. You know, if you were a monk in the Thai forest tradition, the emphasis was practice. Don't worry about teaching. Practice, practice, practice until you've got something, some personal insight that makes you worthwhile you teaching. Because until that point, you know, you could easily teach the wrong thing um, through uh, not having clear understanding and, and personal insight. Um, and I think you've made a really important point in that, you know, without faith, you can't get started. You've got to have faith in a, a, a teacher who's um, keeping a good standard, but also you've got to have faith in the, the Dharma, the teaching, and faith in your ability to to get there. I guess what you're saying with like what's happening on the internet is a lot of Buddhist teachers are just telling people what they want to hear, rather than which is very convenient. But I guess the point um, of the Thai forest tradition is that it's not about doing what's convenient; it's about doing what's worthwhile and yeah. what's going to lead to true liberation see i it, for me personally um i would avoid any um association with um anyone who wants to charge for dharma mm. dharma, yeah. no that's a good point dharma dharma should be free to to whoever wants to listen to it whoever wants to practice it um mm. more importantly um and it shouldn't be uh a matter of how much money you pay, and mm. so uh, um, all the all the books that I translate are all for free. Um, and there's always a sentence in the introduction which says that the books can't be sold because, like Tanachan Mahabur used to say, you know, dharma is not to be traded like goods at a marketplace. Um, it's there for for the liberation of human beings. It's there to help mm. people become free from suffering, and it shouldn't be charged for. So that would be mm. my thing. Anyone who wants to charge for it, in my opinion, is not a true practitioner. They might, yeah. they might practice um, and they may meditate and they may do a lot of things, but they, if they can't see that 
that dhamma should be given away for nothing, then uh, that that doesn't sit well with me because uh, um, my whole my whole tradition has been that dhamma is for free. You know, the Lord well, you know, I, I guess going back to your previous point, I think as a teacher, you've got to have a lot of faith that when you give away your teaching and your time and your effort and your knowledge, you've got to have a lot of faith that people are going to give and support you. So the whole basis of um, this tradition is is not it's, it's faith, but also um, giving. Everything is given, and I, that's the thing that really struck me is that everything is being given away, um, which is incredible. And it, I, I've always been inspired by the generosity of people um, like yourself. You know, you're giving your time to translate these teachings. You don't get paid for that. That's just everything. It's like it really is priceless. Yeah, and so you know, if if uh, if a, a Westerner is looking for um, way a, a way of practice, then um, they should really compare. What they're looking for now, with the way that the Buddha practiced in his day, I mean, he didn't charge for dhamma. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, he yeah. taught, and he wandered from place to place. Even though you know he lived till he was you know, eighty years of age, he uh, he still wandered around even when he was a, an elderly person, um, mm. from village to village, town to town. And uh, did he keep strict vinaya? Yes, of course he did. So, um, did he? Did he? Um, have lay people um, set up as uh, as teachers? Very rarely. Very few lay people um, uh, became enlightened, and those that did became ordained. So, where were his main teachers? His main teachers, people like Sariputta and Moggallana, his, his right and left hand um, lieutenants, ordained. But Westerners mm. tend to look for um, teachers. That are all themselves lay people, and and the monks. If you had a strong sangha, then the lay people could look to the sangha for their teachings. And so this, uh, like I said before, you have to have monks, and the lay people have to support the monks, and the monks have to be dedicated to to right practice, and not just dedicated to learning the scriptures from the books, because dhamma isn't dhamma isn't words on a page. It's not books in a cabinet. Dhamma is here within us, within our being, within our body and mind. And if we want to read the Dhamma, we just have to read our body and our mind. We don't have to go far to do that. But if mm. we can't do that, um, then you know you have to learn a little bit of Dhamma, which is in the books first. But if you then spend all your time reading the books, you don't have enough time to actually read read your being where the real dharma is. Real mm. dharma is reading what's in, inside, not reading what's on the page. Right. I just want to wrap up uh, with one more question. It's, just re it's really a, a speculative question because no one really knows the answer. But, you know, do you think it's possible that, you know, you know, like a forest tradition, which is, you know, back to basics, back to the roots of the practice, tradition could really get established in Western countries, 
Uh, and if so, what's what really is do we need to focus on? Whether we're lay people or whether we're ordained, what's what do we need to focus on developing to make that kind of thing happen? Um, yeah, it's a difficult question to answer, to be honest, because I think it goes. We've almost come full circle back to Ajahn Man and Ajahn Sao. Mm. And I think what it would really take is it would really take a monk or two monks that take on that same sort of practice and that same sort of role, go through that same process and become enlightened themselves and then let others see what that kind of practice can do. It's by yeah. example. It's by example. And yeah. I think that's very difficult these days to find um because because of the fact that um, it, like in the West it's it's not the the, diff- the, the difference between the, today in the West and back then with Ajahn Man is that wherever Ajahn Man went lay people would give him some food um, but going back to your point of generosity there has to be that sort of ethos within the community that will allow monks to be ascetic or, or not not necessarily ascetic but but be more reclusive and still get support so much so that uh, they can develop their own practice and then when they finish that practice become an example it's all by example really you have to yeah. have people who are exemplars so i'm going to take a positive spin on that i'm going to say implicitly in your answer and tell me if I'm wrong, is that we you both need you know, monastics who are really dedicated um, and going to try and give it their all and really stick to the good standards that were set by the Buddha. But also, you need to have lay people who are willing to support. You know, I guess what are really are the heroes of of Buddhism, um, who are going to. T- to live in that way of, of um, it's quite an austere way of living, really. Um, so it's both, both of those things are needed. As, yeah. as that's what I'm taking for what you're saying is monastics who are absolutely dedicated, but also lay people who are willing to support them. Yes, because that's what community is. Mm. To, that's what a Buddhist community is. It's monks, nuns and lay people. Mm, absolutely. Look, uh, I'm going to leave it there, Stephen. Look, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I hope at some days in the future we can talk again on a similar topic. But for the time being, I'm just going to leave it there but and say thank you very much for giving your time and experience and knowledge about the Thai forest tradition. You're welcome. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this insightful episode of Treasure Mountain in which Stephen Taylor who was a bhikkhu in Thailand for seven years during the 1970s, shared his knowledge and experience of the Thai forest tradition. If you'd like to hear more of Stephen's talks, you can find links in the description below this podcast episode. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could share this episode with your friends or other people who you think could benefit from its insights. Treasure Mountain Podcast is part of the Everyday Tama Network. You can find out more about Treasure Mountain Podcast by going to the link in the description below this episode, or you can do a web search for Everyday Dharma Network. You can also find out on the Treasure Mountain Podcast website 
information about all previous episodes and guests, as well as transcriptions of our interviews. If you go back to everydaydharma.net to the homepage, you can discover more about the three other podcasts on the network and links to subscribe to any and all of them if you'd like to. I think you might like them, but tell me what you think by contacting me via the contact page on the website. I'd appreciate your feedback. I hope you will join us again on the next episode of Treasure Mountain Podcast as we seek for the treasure within.